Welcome to Podcast with Cooper Cherry. Today I have Tariq Daniels joining me. Tariq and I are going to talk a little bit about intersectionality, um, I guess broadly speaking, social justice movements and maybe some critiques and what have you. Uh, Tariq actually has a book coming out as well soon, so definitely going to give him the opportunity to speak about that. But Tariq, thanks so much for, for coming out today. Thank you for having me. Absolutely, absolutely. Really excited to have you on. Uh, just having to stumble on your name via Google. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. <laughs> and see, uh, so that uh, I really appreciate you just, you know, accepting this invitation without a lot of, you know, background on me. Or that was that was definitely brave of you to just take the leap. But I very much appreciate it. I really do. No problem. So. I think it might be best for us to start the conversation off by giving our listeners sort of a little bit of our own background so that they can have, I think, an understanding. Obviously, they can't see who we are, what we look like, that gives it, you know what I mean, those identification markers. And so I think it'd be important to ground this conversation in that context of our both our experience in terms of race, gender, you know, socioeconomics, anything that you want to throw in there sexuality. Um, I'll go ahead and start out again. So I want to allow you to have a little bit better insight into me. Um, so, you know, born and raised here in central Texas, white, cis, heterosexual male, um, raised Southern Baptist, pretty traditional standard upbringing for the most part, you know, I think very much so someone that was, you know, Given that background, you know, things like patriarchy and I think specifically maybe, well, I, patriarchy is definitely something that, you know, I grew up in that milieu, right? But also, um, I think homophobia was a big thing for me, especially growing up and just that background. Like, you know what I mean? It's kind of like you have to be the hyper-masculine, tough, like that was always the image that I felt I needed to to, or that the identity I needed to have as this tough, you know, really macho sort of guy. And that sort of drove everything. But um, moving on in terms of education, I have an undergrad degree in English and sociology. Obviously, the sociology gave me a little bit of under, understanding and readings on social inequality. Obviously, racism plays into that. I didn't study a lot of gender um, critiques or a lot of gendered work or queer theory, anything like that. Through my English background, I was exposed to postmodern thinkers like Jacques Derrida and Foucault and, and uh, among others. And then I have a master's in mass communication, which really didn't quite delve into these issues as much specifically, but I tried to take that sort of more liberal arts framework that I was brought up with and apply that to mass communication. So using maybe postmodern critiques of the evolution of the media. And I think at the time, something big was um, the way that digital media was having impact on the world or the potential impact. And I, unfortunately, I was totally wrong. I thought that this flattening out of access to the means of creating media and whatnot would be a more liberatory sort of emancipatory movement. It didn't feel like it, it went the other way, sadly. Um, but so here we are in 2018. I'm hosting a podcast. 
I'm trying to, I think my, my critiques have gotten a little, I've gotten a lot of more sophisticated and mature in terms of understanding where I'm situated in terms of privilege and identity. And really, I think, you know, I think having a very, a much better sophisticated understanding of, of racism, classism, um, you know, all of those sorts of isms and baggage that I have based on my, my experience growing up. But I'm, I'm here to, to learn and I guess be more aware of my shortcomings because I feel like uh, a lot of times, you know, honestly, I feel like I'm maybe the most dangerous type of person you can deal with because I genuinely like, I, I feel very like post-race in a lot of respects, you know what I mean? But I, and I've always kind of felt that way, but I think really now it's like, I notice because the concept of, a, I don't even know what the concept of a microaggression was until fairly recently. Um, but I can definitely see like those, those little subtle behaviors that I can have that, you know what I mean? That I'm not so aware of. Like though it's, I don't know. It's almost more disappointing to have these like quasi things that you kind of overlook. Like you're blind to it. Oh, I'm, I'm this virtuous person. Right. But I still have blind spots. You know what I mean? And I'm obviously working on trying to uncover those, but like, I think there's a danger there. So I want to be very, you know, I want to be very self, conscious about that so that's my side to at least start it off right yeah yeah that's definitely um good to recognize that and um try to go forward and grow forward in that uh, recognition um a little bit about me um as he said i'm Tariq um, daniels um born and raised in detroit michigan um and yes detroit is what everybody thinks detroit is you know born and raised definitely um, I was raised Islamic. Um, oh, really? Yes, 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 yes. Um, my grandmother, um, my mom's side of the family, they were all Muslims. And so I had a definitely a, a different type of upbringing. You know, I was Sunni Muslim and, you know, five times a day, you know, going to school in Islamic garments, you know, fasting during Ramadan and those things. Um, and so early on, I, I had to deal with the issues of being islamic black student in a you know public school system it wasn't easy you know not being able to eat or wear islamic garments to school and everybody making fun of you but so i was learned i learned early on how to deal with being different even right. in my own community certainly and um at you know at a certain point you know i realized early on in my age that i was queer um but of course, being a Muslim, you, you can't be gay. You know, um, Islamic law, you know, abolishes it. You, you, you're going to hell. And so um, my uncles and my grandmother and that side of the family, I definitely couldn't have those conversations with. And we we're talking about 11, 12 years old, I knew. Right. And so at some point, I decided that um, as I got older, that I couldn't be a Muslim. You know, I... I, I was able to identify that I was putting myself through this oppression. As much as I enjoyed my religion and believed in Allah and all of those things, I couldn't be a part of a religion that didn't accept me wholly. And so I think around 16, 17, I started going like to my grandmother, my great grandmother's church. And it was a Christian church. And it was different for me because again, I was not raised in a Christian 
setting. Even though my mom is Christian, again, I she was the oldest of her of my grandmother's children. So I was still kind of raised with my grandmother, who was definitely a Muslim. And um, so when I started going to my great grandmother church, I realized that you know there is a way to be gay and Christian. You know, it is thing of you know Jesus Christ and repentance and. You know, I don't have to die tomorrow, you know, as Islamic law taught me. And so when we talk about intersectionality, it started really early, even in my own community around all black people, you know, going through the same socioeconomic issues. Religion was a division for me, you know. Um, and so I did get baptized like I was 16 years old and became a Christian. So that gave me strength to then come out the closet and be comfortable with who I was and, um, you know, be able to live in my truth, you know, early. I don't know if I had that, if I didn't have that issue with intersectionality then, I don't know if I would have had that same um, shrimp to live in my truth at such an early age where we know a lot of people don't get to live like that, you know, in the um, queer community. So, as you know, we talk about intersectionality, it's definitely a blessing, but it may a curse in some ways. But it, it can be a blessing um, in other ways. Can you, if you don't mind me asking, what? how old are you? I'm 32. You're 32. Okay, so I'm, I'm 35. We're pretty close in age. All right, so what, uh, okay, so you said around 16 mm-hmm. is when you kind of left the Muslim faith, is that right? Correct. All right, interesting. Um, so I guess the first off, I mean, I think you sort of touched on it, but Can you give me, let's start off with kind of defining what intersectionality is. Give us your, your version or your definition of what intersectionality means. Okay. So yeah, I mean, definitely a loaded question, a broad question, (laughs) but I think for me, um, even in the work that I do now is really, and then what you're trying to do with the podcast is just really bringing awareness to the struggles when it's coming from multiple ways you know multiple reasons whether it's like i just stated religion and being you know a minority you know when we talk about sexuality and being a minority we talk about being a woman and being gay or trans and being black or you know a person of color so it's really dealing with the issues and recognizing that it's layered issues it's not a one thing when you're black and gay you're not dealing with one oppression. It's, it's no way to marginalize that because one way you can walk in a room and you have to deal with racism. Then you can walk in the same exact room with different people and deal with homophobia and have two different experiences. But you're still the same person and you might do the same exact thing, walk in a room the same exact way and experience two different forms of oppression. And so I think in general, people understand the idea it's more so getting, like you said, have these conversations about what it means right. and um, identifying that other people can recognize that they might be a part of that intersectionality and that oppression of people based on, you know, multiple things that they might be um, born with or going through in life, whether we talk about socioeconomic. So all of it is not just, you know, sexuality and, and, and um, race, but we just where you come from, where you're born, you know, what you were born into. And so it's kind of like peeling the layers back of what one person 
might have to endure that's not a part of the status quo and this thing of privilege if we do not recognize privilege then the conversation just doesn't need to happen if i can't recognize that i'm a man and not a woman then what you know how can i talk about intersectionality you know if i can say that i'm a cisgender male which is i was born and i recognize myself as a being born a male that I have privileged in someone who is transgender, who was born one sex and decided to become another one. If I don't recognize that we're different, we both might identify as queer, but I have privilege over someone that's transgender. And we don't want to have that conversation, even amongst our own minority groups. And so how can we expect, you know, the majority to understand if we won't understand it within ourselves? So. That's how I'm looking at it these days. Okay. I, I think that's definitely a good start. I want to delve into that a little bit more and definitely come back to privilege in particular. But I was reading some conversations about this topic, and it was sort of the example that they used was if you think back sort of to the civil rights era. Okay, so there, you know, and I think the feminist movement was probably right around the same time or slightly afterwards. So this they were trying to explain that, okay, the civil rights movement is for the equality for, for black people, and feminism is trying to seek out equality for women, but the participants in feminism were primarily white bourgeois women, for example, and the the primary actors or the leadership within the civil rights movement was more so like a male driven, like a traditional sort of male perspective. So while the civil rights movement was, you know, it was lifting up this one aspect of the, of your identity. If you were a black woman, for example, it wasn't quite getting everything because you're also dealing with, you know what I mean? This, this, with sexism as well, even within the black community specifically, right? But they were sort of ostracized from the feminist movement because it's primarily this bourgeois white movement. And so while it was lifting them up as a woman, it was sort of, they didn't really have the understanding of how this might affect, like, yeah, if you gain a racial equality, racial equality doesn't necessarily mean that there's gender equality. And vice versa, and I think maybe does that does that feel like a pretty fair well, I, example? <laughs> uh, beyond fair, I think that's really what it is. I mean, you think about the feminist movement; a lot of it relied on the lack of true um, social or social equality within the civil rights movement. You know, we we know that it was a lack of different issues that wasn't. You know, for example, women's rights. So we're talking about, you know, racial equality, but then that's not defining what a woman is. And I feel like that gave birth to a movement of, you know, the, the feminists. But again, then they took one side. They, you know, we, yes, we're fighting for women's rights. But then again, where did the black woman fit? Exactly. You yeah. know, and, and so we got these two entities doing great work in, you know, you know, Many people might think otherwise, but definitely doing the work that, you know, shaped the future of America. But then the two entities 
when they intersect, it should be the black woman and the black woman is left behind. You know, it, it does nothing for the black woman. You know, it uplifts this idea of what civil rights was and it, up, you know, uplifts this idea of what feminist, feminism is. And then you can go into the Black Panther. We can go to all these different movements. But again, where was the black woman at this, at the height of all these, you know, um, movements and all this progression that America was going through? Again, I feel like they were left behind. Now, the idea of, of them being brought along is just an idea. It wasn't real truth. And I think, again, that represents what intersectionality is. The people that we're supposed to be, you know, representing and, you know, progressing their lives get lost in the sauce with this idea of everybody's getting their own agendas um, to the forefront. You know, because people will use um, oppression as a way to get their own agendas. And it was something we talked about before, like if I recognize something isn't working for someone or they're lacking that resource, let's talk about it. But again, it gets so big that we never do get that person that you recognize was lacking the resource. We don't get the resource to them. You know, you're talking about rights, but then if a black woman still don't have rights, what came out of the civil rights movement? What came out of the feminist movement when in the 80s and the 70s we still had domestic, you know, maids and all these, you know, and, and this is very generalized, but again, that intersectionality is, is important and it's, um, it's been missed. That's why this conversation is important. And I think your background in particular really is a great illustration of this. I mean, because obviously even so, like even within the black community there, you know what I mean? You could be ostracized for your sexuality, even beyond that, let's say so you had like the you grew up muslim so even you know you could be looked down upon or feel oppression coming from both you know other black queer folks for example mm -hmm. could would still be could still treat you as other because of your religious background or, or beliefs and so just because you're black that doesn't that doesn't capture all of it there's more to the story, you know what I mean? And you experience a more unique form of oppression in, in a way, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But I wanted to go back to privilege because I think this is a this is a particular area that, you know what I mean? I don't know, there's such, and another term we'll, we'll throw out here, we'll bring up, I'll bring up white fragility. And I think there's obviously an air of white fragility when it comes to something like white privilege because people don't, it's, you know what I mean? It's sort of this thing that people have a blind spot to. They don't see it. It's not always so readily apparent, and especially whenever the dominant discourse in the United States has been this hyper-focus on individuals and the market and the legitimacy of the market. And if you're not successful, it's because you didn't work hard enough. It's not because there are these systemic historical issues that have impacted your ability to succeed or encounter barriers in your pursuit of whatever your end goal is, right? So, and it, I, I think in particular, it can be an area where, okay, so for example, myself, I'm sort of coming from, I don't know, you would probably call my background white trash. <laughs> we'll just, just call it, just call it what it is, you know what I mean? Um, so 
while I may not have or feel like I have economic privilege, I definitely do. Um, but in a situation like there are other areas outside of economics where interacting with authority figures like the police, for example, I think maybe the police is probably the biggest and starkest situation where, you know what I mean? I'm perceived as one way because of my, because I am white, right? I'm treated very much, very differently when it comes to law enforcement or even authority figures in my school, you know, like coaches or principals or anything like that, because they're bringing, you know what I mean? This sort of the greater culture is inherently like there's systemic racism in the culture itself. Like it's built into all aspects of the fabric and of, of our society. So it shapes how those individuals even look at you. They're using that as like a shortcut to identify you or classify you. So like, how do I, how do I treat this person? And there are very subtle ways in which they can treat you differently and I mean, I'm sure that I'm guilty of this too. I think, you know, obviously this is something that we see like in sexism in the workplace. I'm trying to think like the Google memo guy, for example, you know, <laughs> you remember the James Damore? So the, he was worked at Google and there's a bit, he sent out this memo about how basically women didn't have, don't have an aptitude as much as men do for coding, for example. And so, like, he's trying to make the argument this is this is a biological difference that leads to this actual difference within the world. Like, so, basically, the status quo is that, you know what I mean, if you work hard or whatever, and, like, people are naturally drawn to different types of work, which, eh, I don't, I don't know if that's necessarily the case, right? Right, yes, <laughs> uh, no. You know what I mean? Sort of this... It, idea that individuals are the like you know what i mean individuals it doesn't matter what your history is or what have you it's all about in, the individual and you're not impacted by you know even something as subtle as the clothes the color clothes that you're brought up in you know what i mean right. those things start super early especially when it comes to gender you know what i mean blue pink right like that's an early 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 way that we differentiate the way that men and women alone are treated yeah i mean and that along is a totally different topic of this whole idea of masculinity and femininity that um that we're um we've all been brought up in you know in any culture and community but it's so weird that you were just talking about um the issue with the just the smallest things that um racism or the idea of a privilege comes in um last night i went to a a, a, sports, a sports bar type of thing and you know this particular area has this a lot of restricted rules about what you can wear it, it is it is i it's something that i've known and something that i've dealt with so long that i try not to get bothered by it but for some reason like it still bothers me because it even though I know it's a normal, I just still in my heart feel like it is just just ridiculous. You know, um, a guy from out of town that we were with, he had on, um, I want to say like a Mets jersey, like a baseball jersey. Okay. You know, a button-up one. One you wear every day. If it was a Sunday, your team was playing baseball, they play a lot. So they probably play multiple days. I don't really think baseball, like Sunday is baseball. Day, right. Like, you know, football and stuff like that. So baseball is just a very universal day and you get any day of the week 
have on your favorite sports team. And this particular place that I go to, I know I've seen white men in this in a Mets jersey. It is nothing to think about. It doesn't represent anything other than that's maybe a team that they like. And then, honestly, the black guy last night had the same Met jersey on, and it was, you have to take that off. We don't allow, you can't wear that. As if it meant anything more than that was his favorite team. He's so far removed from anything that would be considered gang culture. You right. know, he's, you know, um, with a queer individual. I, I can definitely vouch that he had nothing to do with what they might perceive him wearing that jersey meant. You know, we are not those people that they perceive us to be. And that jersey didn't represent anything. Then he had on red shoes. He had a red jersey for his favorite team. But because of these small nuances, these small things that they put in place to maybe help them identify what could be a problem, but it's just really a form of racism. There's no way around it. You can't. You know, oh, the owner has the right to feel the way they do. Yes, they have that right. Doesn't make it right. You cannot, you know, you know, tell one person not to wear something because of what you think that means to them versus someone else. And I just think it's the most bizarre and just flat out, you know, racist thing. But it's so small. All right. So, Tariq, you were telling us a story about how you went you went out to some friends to a particular uh, sort of establishment and they caused a little bit of a fuss about someone in in your groups the way that the attire that they were wearing i mean kind of overtly i would say overtly racist in in many respects <laughs> trying to you know what i mean and sort of we were talking about a little bit about the subtleties of privilege and how these little things can become you know what I mean? Like markers for, I don't know. You know what I mean? They want to make the, I'm, I'm just going to come out boldly and say that they make the assumption that based on your friend being black and wearing a sports jersey, that he was some type of like, he was a, a thug. He was, you know, a element that they did not want to be in their establishment, <laughs> even though that was definitely not the case. Right. And, and the idea that a jersey, you know, I, I don't even see how that even, um, correlates you know right. i can understand sometimes i mean maybe it was red I, I again i'm so far removed of what From is that considered world, yeah. to be <laughs> thuggish yeah that, the idea that you know and then when you try to ask because i generally don't understand i don't understand what they identify as where, where they get this criteria right you know um i you know again a, a jersey and i'm not you know and i get it if it was like a like I'm about to play basketball jerseys and you're trying to walk into an establishment. I mean, a, you know, a tank top. I right. kind of get that. Yeah. Maybe that would be a little bit more, um, under, you know, acceptable. But just a regular wool knitted jersey with the undershirt, you know. And so, but it's just those things. It, it's normal. I, I can count. I can't even imagine to tell you how many times I've had to deal with that. And again, a person that has no understanding of what, and not to be trying to separate myself, I'm black, but I don't understand what is considered to be thug. I've never lived that kind of life. Right. But I can walk somewhere, walk into an establishment and be felt like I'm something's wrong with me based on what I have, have on and never realize that it would have been a, a issue. You know, um, I, 
it, I went to an establishment before and had on some gym shoes. Never thought about it. You know, I usually wear Vans, and I mean, I like comfortable flat <laughs> shoes. I'm not a right big on. gym shoe person. Gotcha. But I wore one, and it was an issue. But I'm like, why? When I know that people wear gym shoes here all the time, that's not black. Right. You and know? I think maybe that's the most important thing to gather is that, you know what I mean? It's like if I showed up as a white person wearing the same outfit, I'm going to be treated much differently, right? Much different. It's a totally different context Mm -hmm. in the way that you're treated, even though objectively it could be the very same style or what have you. Or, you know what I mean? I could be a thug. You know what I mean? Just because I'm white doesn't mean that I can't be a fucking criminal either. You You know know, what I'm saying? Or you could be the one that, you know, just in general, selling the drugs, you know? Or getting into fights or being, you know, whatever the, whatever trying to crowd or behavior they're trying to, keep out of their establishment you know what i mean yeah it's interesting but um like i said it's just that's so normal but so small and so i just like to we were just talking about that but again like i said it goes into my own community being queer you know i get treated a different way um you know labeling because i am a queer individual my organization that's a queer organization when it's not and i think i've at first, I didn't mind it because, it, to me, that's not an issue if you think that. But then I guess I do have the problem with maybe you're saying that to, to separate what I'm doing as if that's over there because he's queer and, you know, it's not a part of just being black. Again, that intersectionality issue. Like, so what is the separation? Let, why are you separating my cause for people of color because it's I'm queer. Why? Why? What does the separation mean? Are you saying that we're not black enough, or we don't represent you because I'm queer, but I'm black? You're black. What's the difference? You know, if we're talking about black unity, you know, it should not be a separation amongst sexuality. But so that's what I came up with as I process someone telling me that. You know, I'm like, well, what does that mean? Again, I wasn't offended by it initially, but when I go home and think about it, like. Are they trying to downplay, right. you know, my cause because of me being queer? Like, you know, that's other, you know. And so, again, it, it, it comes from multiple ways. And then, like I said, if I was a woman, oh, my God, I can just imagine, you know, what, the, you know, a woman queer of color goes through. Like, they could probably go through racism, you know, at well. I mean, a day of a black uh, or woman of color, it could start at work with dealing with gender issues, like you stated earlier, you know, being less than, considered less than because they're a woman. They can go through a day with those subtle racisms like, oh, I like your natural hair or what did you, how did you get your hair like that? That question is offensive to some people, you know, um, but that you might not know that, you know, it's those subtle things that then, you know, if they're queer, they can go through, you know, at the, you know, by the end of the day, something else. So imagine having to walk in the shoes that you have all these bullets that could be coming at you for various reasons that make up of who you are. That's trauma. Right. You know, it's a form of trauma when you have to dodge bullets all day just to exist, just to wake up, live life and go to sleep. And that's the conversation we're not having to help people recognize what that means, you know. 
certainly. I mean, obviously, my my privilege creates a whole different set of circumstances. And I think growing up, I think in terms of so- socioeconomic status, mm-hmm. I wasn't coming from the most prestigious or like the most moneyed family, at least in, in a certain sense, like my grandfather was wealthy, mm-hmm. but my immediate family, like my father, my mother, like we didn't have a lot of money. And so I, I always felt ashamed and embarrassed because I wanted to, you know what I mean? It's like, I wanted to wear the, I wanted Jordans. My parents, we couldn't afford Jordans, <laughs> yeah. but I wanted them so bad that other kids have them. That was like a, sh- a sort of a source of shame, I think, in many ways. Mm-hmm. As as stupid as that seems, like, you know what I mean? Like, so through that lens is where like that, although I don't have to experience these other forms of institutional oppression and whatnot, like that is my window into understanding how something like that can be very subtle, but it's something that can impact your individual, like your psychology and your own formation of self-worth and, and things along those lines. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely valid. You know, socioeconomic status is definitely a valid situation. And again, you put that on top of it, you know, um, as you say, like you can recognize that and you experience that and, and so I don't even I didn't even add that to that equation, but again, you know, and so it does, you know, mess with the psyche or the um, the spirits of people, you know. Uh, I think that's one of the things we don't talk about. I mean, we we talk about all these isms and stuff, but we really don't like. I use the word trauma, you know, and PTSD is coming up a lot more. We're using that a lot more broadly. It's not just to, you know, you know, active military or, you know, veterans and, you know, and military services, we're actually starting to look at PTSD or I don't say we, others are starting to look at it as a, is a person who's living an everyday life suffering trauma, are they going through PTSD? And when we talk about your status in America or just the example I gave of when you wake up and go to sleep and all the bullets that come in your way, and if you're doing that every day, for the rest of your life, you know, can we say that that's not a form of PTSD when, you know, things, people start to react in a certain way or live their lives in a certain way or, you know, that you can be all you can be when that doesn't seem like reality, you know, um, or if they just work hard enough, that's not reality for someone who's having to fight those different things. I mean, to work hard enough, meaning what? It's just at work? What about people who are just trying to work hard enough to survive all this stuff? Right. You know, and so I think PTSD, I don't like to use it as much because I don't want to minimize because, you know, I'm a mental health advocate. So I definitely want to be a part of this movement that we're using PTSD broadly, but I don't want to minimize what, you know, research that we already have for people who've served in armed forces and people who've been in... Um, you know, different volatile situations and stuff like that, or trauma, like real trauma that we have researched to identify that they do go through PTSD. But I do like that we're taking it a little broadly and we're starting to identify, and that's kind of going back to what you're saying about why intersectionality is becoming so, like a topic now. We are identifying what people go through on a normal basis that we don't consider trauma. Right. You know, but what is trauma? Definitely, I feel like it's it's work on on many people, like on that on your part, because 
you have like you're othered constantly in the society or these these different ways that people look at you or for, you know what I mean the even comments it, like co- what may be a compliment in their mind undermines your like who you are and there's a lot of psychological impact caused by these different things. So, yeah, I mean, in, in many respects, it is sort of a trauma. If you're constantly having to be put upon by like, oh, this category or this category, and you're treated materially differently, you can't even just go to a bar with your friends and be treated like everyone else because of, <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Because of your identity, right? Mm-hmm. So definitely there is, there's work that, you know what I mean? And it, a lifetime of that kind of having to, you know what I mean? Having to bend to, and you know what I mean? Cause also if you speak out too, like there's retribution, mm-hmm. it's like, you can't really speak out necessarily because of the institute, the institutional, whatever oppression that's built into the system itself. Yeah. I mean, it's, a, um, it's a constant thing. And, you know, again, it, it you know, you know, the grandmas and the great grandma, they always say, you know, it makes you stronger, you know, what you have to go through. So it's not, I think when you are born and raised through these, and I like to use isms because I don't want to list all right. of <laughs> good, good, good call. these isms <laughs> in life, you, you, you do, I, you do um, identify, or I would say you get tougher, tough skin. So it doesn't, it, it, it you can not go through PTSD if you, if you build that, you know, uh, resistance or that ability to live through it, you know. Um, so I don't want to make it seem like everybody is just, it, it, it takes them down a path that they can't come back. But it is one of those things that when we talk about privilege, and I guess we're going to use that word a lot, is that where's the fairness in that? Right. Like, where Where's the people to talk about the fairness that even if I can build that resistance or even if someone can live life and make it through that to try to compare a, 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 a life of that versus a life that don't go through that and try to say the opportunities are the same. It's just ridiculous. Like you're, you know, the idea, like we, you stated before that people say, if you work hard, you get the same opportunities. Again, you're talking about an opportunity that, but we're talking about life, you know? Um, and then we're not even going to get on the opportunity. Like, I can go and say, no, it's not the same opportunity. It's not the same path if you're going down another path of a socioeconomic status. If you come down one road and you come down the other, you're not getting to the same thing the same way. And that's just facts. And we can talk about that all day long, that if you, like you said, work hard or you can do it. America is a place where anybody can make it. I, I guess, you know, that's a very general thing to say. I mean, yes, if you post a job online, yeah, anybody can apply, anybody can interview, and anybody can get it, but what's that road to that? Like, who's the person that's posting a job interview? Who's the person doing the interview? Who's the person saying yay or nay? Who's the person in the background saying that um, you have five white people on your team and you need at least one black person? You know what I'm saying? So all those things get you to the point of, same opportunity and then when you go through all of that when you go pull the layers back then how can you say it's the same opportunity it's not the same opportunity the opportunity is there but it's not the same and i think that's one of my um issues or one of my things that i when i say um allies whether it's 
straight, white, whatever, is to recognize that. I mean, we know what it is, so let's really talk about it. Like, don't say, oh, you can do the same thing I can do. Don't say that when you know it's not true. Right. And I mean, I think that sort of, that also speaks a little bit to privilege because it's like, yeah, you, come on, like, you know what I mean? It's like, I can, I can discount your perspective because I don't suffer from that same very subtle, like it's very subtle, you know what I mean? And that's what I think people overlook is these subtle ways that these cultural norms or like this racism, this institutional racism and and thing, institutional, whatever, like the patriarchy, all of this stuff that is inside of us, you know what I mean? It's like, it's, if you're a, I always use this metaphor for like the fish swimming in the ocean. The fish, it's it's water to you, right? So you don't really notice that you're in water, but you're surrounded by all of this, right? And so that's where I think maybe microaggressions can really get even more because it's like you, if you someone else can totally invalidate your feelings, well, you don't have to. It's not fair for you to say that because you don't experience like me as a white male, right? Like there's very little. And there's there's no institutional racism that I experience. There's no institutional sexism that I experience other than like maybe I'm expected to be a certain, you know what I mean? I'm spe- expected to be like this certain ideal of masculinity, like in some way. But you know what I mean? It's not an oppressive feature in many ways for the most part. You know what I mean? Right. It's the idea that. With anything, your idea of what masculinity, what you have to be, is you is usually the oppression comes from the person that's not, you know, like or the person that maybe don't want to be that way. So, so even within that, that's privilege still in that because whatever you choose to be is okay. It's usually the person that's not that that goes through the oppression, you know. So if it was a, for example, a, a white straight feminine guy, you know, said so if what comes along with that, you know, um, and it's his normality and there's nothing, you know, the, that's what oppression comes in because he's not what uh, a masculine guy would be. And then, so, so again, if you are that, then you're fine. It's the people that not that, that usually the ones that have to actually suffer oppression, um, in some kind of way. Um, so yeah, and it, it, it and again, it's those small things that you were saying, those microaggressions. But it's also the big things, like it's the things that we know and we do. And I guess for me, with the whole idea of um, allies, I just I like to use the word ally a lot because I, I appreciate. It. I don't think that we can have movements or change without people being allies. Everybody don't have to walk in your shoes to understand what that you know walking in those shoes might be or listen or get a knowledge of and they might not have to agree it's not about agreeing what you know everybody want to say about beliefs but right is right wrong is wrong everybody should have the right to live their life you know even whatever your beliefs is should not be a punishment for someone that has a different belief or a way of life and so i'm not big on trying to change people points of views i'm just I, I like the conversations i like to learn opposition point of views because i like to know what's out there right so exactly you know <laughs> uh, and the whole idea earlier you were stating like you know with the the you know the election and uh, and what um kind of like what trump brought out in america i'm i feel more comfortable now knowing 
where we are than before when everybody was trying to sing Kumbaya and it was... Like, yeah. And I mean, maybe that's... I mean, that's probably right, to be honest. I mean, it definitely illuminated thing. I mean, obviously, like, I had this idea that, you know, that things were broken in many respects and that racism was still, like, a thing because, man, I had a conversation right around... Uh, I think it was, like, 2008 with a white family and, some, like, some friends of mine they were like, they were basic, their basic kind of feeling was that, oh, now that we have a black president that, oh, well, there's no racism like that. That just ended all of a sudden with the election of Obama. And I was like, oh my God, what? No, <laughs> like, geez. And at this time, like, I didn't even have the most sophisticated critique of like institutional racism even at the time. So <laughs> I'm just like looking back at that now. I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> but I was, I was really shocked by just how how far things had gone like it it felt it did feel like we were on a better track in some regards once obama did get elected and i'd never felt like that was i mean it was an important step right but there was still plenty of work to be done i think the way that things have gone since have really shown that man we it was it was I had blinders on mm-hmm. to the situation and not only in terms of where we are with race and things of that nature, but even just the base, like the socioeconomic fabric of the country. And whereas that's kind of where like I focus a lot of my study on is trying to figure out, you know, how do we, how do we organize society? How do we organize a just egalitarian society? You know what I mean? Because I obviously don't think that we have that. I think that we have, you know what I mean? We give lip service to all of these great ideas about, you know, the the American dream and what have you. But we have systematically created a situation where that can't, that's not the case for, for many people. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like I'm, I am for reparations, for example, because I think that going back like the whole institution of slavery like think about how much wealth was created on the backs of those slaves right i mean untold millions and millions and millions of dollars that went into primarily white hands that you know perpetuated through you know not only i guess inheritance but just in general like right so that created and you can't have a free market if you know these white people have benefited from this from hundreds and hundreds of years of accumulation of wealth from the black community the slave community you know what i mean so i absolutely feel like that's a just that's justified like we how can you ever have say that we have equality of opportunity when some people are starting out at second base and third base and some people haven't even <laughs> been given an opportunity to be participate in the game you know what i mean Yes, I mean uh, reparations. I mean that, that's definitely a very a touchy topic, even amongst black people. Right? And, you know, I'm just like, hey, you deserve it. You know, know your history, and and you know, it's not an idea of relying on it or an idea of necessarily fighting for it. I mean, I do appreciate the ones that continue to, you know, try to make it legislation and try to get it, you know, into on a federal level that reparations is is. It's a thing. It is is a vital 
it will be a vital turning point in the historical landscape of America. And, and I agree with most people until that happened, you can never say this is a equal opportunity country or this is the American dream or the land of the free. Cause it's not really true. You know, like you say, like the monies that were, you know, built on the backs of slaves and the cottons and the historical, you know, generation uh, money being handed down to all the corporations that operates now. And, and, and I do still believe that a lot of it is still, you know, right winged. A lot of these situations, a lot of this media, a lot of these organizations, a lot of the gun laws, the lobbyists, all of this stuff, I still think it's funded through generations of, you know, slave, slave work. And um, the mission has always been the same. And, uh, and on the other side, yes, we it's still money that just have been handed down and everybody don't have agenda on that part. It's just the American dollar. So it's like it's like almost like this evil money that um, that has not acknowledged. I mean, what, you know, the creation of this country and where the dollar started here um, and where it had it gone. Um, I, I definitely think reparation is um, is a must. I don't think that I necessarily, you know, fight for that cause as much. I don't believe it would ever happen in my lifetime. I mean, lifetime. Uh, sadly, we are a long <laughs> way. Man, we're just trying to get health care for everybody, right? right? Like, geez, that's a long road to hoe. But I think, I mean, for, for me, it's something that's justified. And I take the very anarchist approach that, you know, it's like we as, as, as working people, like throughout the centuries, like all of the people that have worked to create the world that we're in today, like there's a shared like ownership of even just from everybody that's worked and struggled and suffered to build like the railroads, to build the buildings, to build all of this shit that we have today. Like there's a debt that's owed to those people that suffered regardless of who they are. Like obviously there's very different levels of suffering that occurred, but like that's, we have a shared legacy as human, as a human race. And to me, that is that is my justification for for anarchism, is that like there's all that work has been done. Like we all built this, you know what I mean? All of us from the jump. Like we had to build it out of nothing, and we all did it. And some people benefited from that situ- from different situations a lot more, but we all have a, a stake in it, and we need to be more equal in terms of acknowledging that and like distributing the wealth that we all we all participate in the system right so we all i think we all deserve we all have a share in society you know what i mean mm-hmm. but i mean that's getting to ec- the economic yeah, system yeah. which i i'm a little bit more comfortable in, in that realm but at the same time i like i want to recognize too that a lot of like the socialists like the brochurists the left the, the people like myself that are like this white leftist right um it's like, yeah, somebody like Jay-Z or LeBron or whatever, like they may not be in the same social class in some respects, but they still exp- can experience racism. You know what I mean? And that goes back to intersectionality is like, hell, LeBron's fucking house in LA got spray, they spray painted like a racial epithet on his property. So even though he has this status, in one realm, he's still a he like he oh yeah you have money but you're still black you know what I mean, right? And um, I mean you could even go further into that you know a lot of people um, and they use Jay Z and LeBron as a reference a lot and again this is not necessarily my feelings 
but the idea that you know they pick certain you know um, minorities to get that wealth the wealth is you know a lot of people strive to be a Jay-Z or LeBron but in in all actuality the wealth that they have is not real you know the wealth that they have is still tied behind someone who's giving them permission to have that wealth because when you you know the Oprah's it is the idea of that the wealth is it, it would never be distributed amongst um, minorities because there is not for them it's you know it's kind of like I give one person enough and then we're okay you know we have a certain if we got point zero 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 six percent of black people that consider them can, can consider themselves wealthy then we've done enough right and, and then again so that money is not that's why you don't see money going back into the black communities and the black communities is being you know um you know, prospering. I read an article that was saying like more is more wealthy black people in the country. But is it like where is the wealth going? Like again, is that wealth being controlled by? And again, it's, that's not my. Um, I don't have much knowledge on the whole economic theories and the whole hidden, you know, th- things with the with the mighty dollar. <laughs> but I can say though, it does make sense to me in the idea of. You say that it's more wealthy black people, but we're not seeing any more wealthy neighborhoods or we're not seeing, you know, neighborhoods that were once, you know, in shambles, shambles are now being, you know, prosperous in black households and black communities. Not that other people are coming in and still getting the money, you know, you know, of course you can um, revitalize or gentrify a neighborhood and say, oh, it's like they do in Detroit, oh, the new Detroit. But the new Detroit does not incorporate the people who's there and been there and still poor. So if it's more black people or more people of color getting money, supposedly, then why aren't we seeing that in these in these generations? It should start multiplying, even if your cousin, 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 and we're talking about wealth. So we're not talking about somebody that has a million dollars. We're talking about we're creating, you know, multi-million dollar people and almost billionaires, then the wealth should, we should start seeing that. If that's really true wealth, and I do kind of, and that's a whole different situation, but it does, and this is all recent in my mind that I've been seeing YouTube people talk about this, but it kind of does make me wonder, like, where is this, where does Jay-Z money go? Right, or where does, I mean, it's, Interesting. <laughs> Honestly, it's interesting to situate somebody like Jay-Z and LeBron in the context of like, are they working class still? In a, like, in a sense, they're working class still, right? But yet they have some ownership ability too. So it's like, I don't know how to quite, I don't know enough about their finances mm-hmm. to really situate where they fall in this hierarchy. Because it's like, at the same time, you have, okay, let's say people that aren't at that quite that level of entrepreneurship or what have you um just like the average like i don't know we'll, we'll go with like sports stars right like they are still working class because they have if they're not working playing whatever sport they don't like that's it they there would they would have no more income right you know what i'm saying so even at that it doesn't matter necessarily how much money you earn it's where you're situated in terms of owning stuff right. so I can make a lot of revenue without have. It's whenever you can get wealth or a- accumulate wealth through where you're not actually laboring for it. You know what I mean? That's what separates, I guess, working class from 
bourgeoisie or the owning owning class or what have you. Yeah, it's it's definitely interesting. Um, Where are the wealthy? And I mean, I know some, and like in you know D.C., you have the uh, the, you know um, a neighborhood here, a neighborhood there that you can identify as a affluent you know black neighborhood, or you know definitely in Arizona is affluent you know, Latino neighborhoods where the wealth is there. I read about it all the time. But again, it, it definitely makes me think, you know, right. uh, this whole idea of maybe that's why they justify not giving reparations or did they justify that opportunities are there. But I don't know if it's all really real. And, and uh, you know, I don't try to get into, the, like I said, all these theories, you know, it, it gets kind of, it get tiring after a while. Trying to, um, <laughs> Man, that's where I, that's where I love to work. Yeah. Honestly, theory theory is I love that shit. Yeah, it's it what fascinates me. me. It is fascinating <laughs> though. It does make me think, and it does like, oh, that's interesting. I usually always end it like that's interesting. I usually don't have one way or the other if, if I believe it or not. But I like to hear about them, especially when it comes to like since we were on the topic of reparations. I feel like they use that as a justification as to why reparations isn't needed because. We have, you know, a few, you know, wealthy people. Right. But again, oh, Oprah's real. What do you mean? Right. Not Oprah right. Did we it. had a black president, man. Yeah. Come on. What are you doing? What you about? But then I want to know where these, you know, when we talk about like the Indian tribes and places that have, where, where are these, like I said, and it's kind of repetitive, where are these black neighborhoods that's benefiting from this idea that you can get it? Why we... Why can we? Why do we have to pinpoint to specific figures? We're talking about a, a class of people, right? And to me, that's is you know an oxymoron in itself. So, stop using that as a justification as to why reparations isn't needed. So, definitely. I mean, just to go back to, it's like you can't, and that's my problem. I think with conservatism or the right wing is they ignore like it's all it's all individual like it's so focused on individual experience and it divorces that individual experience from any kind of historical situation and those historical situations have an impact on how you respond to your environment and what have you you know what I mean markets are great for doing certain things but they always create they you know what I mean like there's the conditions rely on inequity. You know what I mean? That's it's built into the market, right? Because there's only there's winners and there's losers within that market. You know what I mean? Somebody's getting uh, awarded for up the price of whatever. Somebody's you know what I mean? In that sim in that one transaction, somebody's winning and somebody's losing. Somebody's getting more than what they deserve, and someone's getting less than what they deserve, and that's where profit comes in. Exactly. You know, somebody exactly. has to lose. Exactly. And what what this does at the scale of a country like the United States is it divorces those people from that exploitation. Because it's like, it's, uh, it's imaginary, right? It's like, they don't have to ever face the people they're exploiting. And I think in many respects now with like the glo- the way that globalization has occurred, right? We in the United States have a lot of, we exploit a lot of other poorer countries and harvest their resources. And since we're already in this sort of Western financialized 
economy. Like we can go into places and offer them like we offer like these loans like through the World Bank to countries so that we can harvest like whatever resources they have because that's like the only thing they have in their area is like, oh, they have like bauxite, for example, or, you know, some other crazy resource or maybe oil, right? Mm-hmm. Well, that's a big one, yeah. In particular with, you know, this situation in Syria that, God, who knows, who even understands what that conflict is about? You know what I mean? Yeah, right, on the back end. Um, but then when you look at it, it's just the people, though. Like, for me, I mean, I, we all know it's something behind that, but I just see the people being, you know, hurt and, and, and stuff like that. That's where my heart goes to because, like you said, ain't no telling what the real issue of all of this, you know, all these wars and all these issues and, you know, what, what and then now what Trump, why Trump decides to get involved in some things and don't get involved in others. You know, he, he's definitely been a little bit more... Um, non-transparent about the things that he decided to do and that makes me wonder like what's what he's getting out of it or you know like versus what he care or not and but then again that helps me because it's always been that way it, so we use him as a face of like this person that's doing all these things but he's just blatant about it it's right. not that is he's not doing anything that whoever even if you were more left, who you know, however you stand, you use this opportunity to, you know, get your points across through the things that benefit you and, and the people that you work for. And I mean, I mean, I, that's politics, so I guess, <laughs> duh. But I just feel like what we all should be learning is this has always been going on. Now that we just have a situation that we can see and I appreciate it even though we might have to go through all this what we're going to go through as a people but I like that the layers have been peeled back Un- yeah things have been unmasked uh, uh, so to speak <laughs> yes unmasked you can see I mean and you know and you know Facebook has been the biggest eye opener for me some of the comments and the hatred oh god Facebook I mean, comments are the worst. I don't know YouTube Probably has the worst comments YouTube, followed by Facebook. Facebook. Okay, maybe. I'm not really a YouTube person uh, that much, but um, yes. Well, just I, know, never, never delve into those comments because yeah. they are always the worst. It's crazy because people, it, it's like a they can hide behind you know these fake profiles and 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 not hide behind them. You know, I think nowadays we all, hey, I hate you and I'm okay with hating you and. <laughs> I hate you and I'm going to get 20 new followers for saying I hate you because they hate you too, you know? And so, but it's, I, I enjoy the, the unmasking. So I know where I stand, you know, or what I have to be a little bit more. And it goes back to that PTSD because I am more alert, you know, kind of, we brought up police brutality earlier. Um, my God, like, I mean, it's a thing. It, it's, it's, it's every time I'm in a car, every time I'm around police, it, it, I have to under, make sure I'm in the right situation. And again, I don't live my life as a person that's usually have to worry about the law. I don't break like, laws often. <laughs> <laughs> but you get what I'm saying? I don't live that life where I should be paranoid. Threatened about, or whatever. Yeah, yeah but I have to, you know, I have to be on my P's and Q's as if, because anything that I could be doing could cause that attention that my life is in danger. And it's not a, you know, I believe in police force. I believe we should support, 
you know, our um, people that does services, you know, the, the fire department. Um, you ever seen a show 911 on Fox? Oh, yeah. And, and, and this is real random, but I, I watched that show and, you know, I and I've always given firefighters, you know, much respect. But this whole idea of first responders, I guess I never, and I'm 32 and you learn stuff every day. They have to do so much. Imagine if we did not have firefighters and the idea of being trained to be first responder. It is bizarre some of the stuff that they have to do. And I guess I always just thought they put out fires. Yeah. But then when I thought, why? And it's dramatic. Car wrecks. Yeah, yeah car yeah. wrecks, all kinds of crazy shit know, they have to deal with. Amusement parks, babies in the wall. It, it just <laughs> babies every, in the wall. What, the show is <laughs> a dramatized, but it yeah, opened no, my I got eyes as to what they have to do and then um and i only brought that up because you know of course the police force and, and the idea that you know you know the war between blacks and 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 the police departments across the country um i respect the work because we didn't have you know police officers and firefighters but it's a problem <laughs> you know there's no way to deny that it's a problem it's a problem that's been going on and again, everything is now put, it's unmasked, like you said earlier. And um, I'm worried. I worry for my nephew. I worry for my brother-in-law. I worry for any black person that's driving or in a situation where law enforcement can be involved. It, it's an issue. And I'm, I'm actually going to do, a, um, with the working group that I do with the city of Austin, the commissioner, the um, intersectionality group that we do, we're going to host a forum where we have um, like firefighters, police officers, just to come in and like, because when you deal with people of color, we are talking about, of course, the whole thing with police brutality amongst blacks. Then you're dealing with the issue with, you know, undocumented people and being, you know, ice raised and their lives feel like they would be sent back home. And you have that issue. Then you have, and then in the circle that I'm speaking of, the queer people. They're not comfortable. But then can you have a queer event without police presence? That's danger in that. So you have danger without police presence because that then that opens you up vulnerable to anybody that's anti-gay, you know, to come and, you know, we know what happened in Pulse. We know situations that, you know, you could be attacked for that. But then do I want the police around? That makes me uncomfortable as well. Yeah. So you can't is, win. <laughs> it's the intersectionality issue right. right there. Like you need police, but you don't need police. But you don't. It's like, well, where do you fit? Where can you feel safe in that situation? I'm really for. Uh, see, I, I'm not the biggest fan of authority figures in general. <laughs> Let little. I mean, not to say the police. Uh, definitely not not a fan of the police too too much. Okay. To be quite honest. I think we need to radically alter the way that we even per, like handle law enforcement in our communities. For one thing, I think that just, I would rather see, I don't know. I feel like everybody needs to be a cop. You know what I mean? In some, in some respects, like kind of the way that certain countries have like compulsory, compulsory military. Um, it, it's like, the problem is that these people are bringing their, you know what I mean? They're bringing, this these aggressions into their police work through institutional racism and things that they might not even be aware of right and i think it's not even restrict it's not even restricted to color right because mm -hmm. you can have 
a black individual that has internalized the grander this idea of like white supremacy i think and and that can even occur right Mm -hmm. so i think we need to eliminate this idea of like the police force it feels like is always going to be most of the time filled with people that have a certain personality type they want they want authority once they get authority then like there's there's something weird going on with the psychology of it so i'm very skeptical of someone being able to be a cop unless they you know what i mean it's like you want the people that to be cops that don't want to be cops you know what i mean that's who we want to be our police officers because they're the people that have empathy and sympathy and like know how to de-escalate situations where I think a lot of the attraction to the police force in some respects can be like, oh, I get to have a gun and I'm going to be an authority figure. And like that changes, you know what I mean? That element of power and authority, it messes with you. You know what I mean? Even if you do have good intentions, when you're working a beat or something like that and you're in like a shitty neighborhood, doesn't matter what the situation is. If you're in a shitty neighborhood, like you're going to look at, if you're going to look at everybody through that lens. You know what I mean? And if you're constantly dealing with certain issues, you're going to, you know what I mean? That's going to have an impact on you. You're going to be less likely to be empathetic towards people. You know what I mean? So I think we need to totally radically alter the way that we do our law enforcement in this country. Yeah, I mean, police uh, reform is is a must. But damn, I don't want to be a cop either. man. I don't don't want to do it. I can't do it. Um, I, I wouldn't do it. Um, no, it, that's. I mean, I agree with you. Um, I was watching that documentary on Flint, Michigan, on, on Netflix, and it focused on um, the police department. And I was, it was, it, it was, it's interesting. I definitely, I don't know. It needs to be reformed on so many levels. And again, I don't. It's a topic that I don't dive into as much because I don't know what that will look like. Right. I don't know how we, because we're still, we could say all day reformed or police departments, but then we're in a, a country that, you know, believes in, you know, uh, law and order in a way of by any means necessary. And, um, and uh, we believe in, you know, guns and, and things of that nature. So we can, take one entity and blame the police department as to that like, is specifically, you know, law enforcement that needs to be reformed. But I mean, they're just representing the bigger issue like we talked about. And of course we have to, you know, dive into that specifically because they're, they're specifically, you know, lives are being lost. Policing has went to a degree of corruption, a degree of, well, we, we talk about small stuff. Not, they're not small anymore. Anytime someone is getting shot in the back so many times, I don't care how you can prove that it was justified. That can't be an example of policing. Right. You know, in the backyard. It's just no way. You know, there's no way that you could justify somebody from the back. Well, that, I mean, the fact that it's okay to, like, we're just kill like the, they're just killing people like it doesn't matter who like <laughs> the fucking police like give them give them a weapon like give them a fucking net i don't know there's got to be some other like non-lethal way to subdue somebody that doesn't like require them to be killed you know what i mean or even seriously injured you know what i mean it's just it's ridiculous that this is the norm and like nobody says anything about it you know what i mean yeah I, that's what I'm saying. It's, it's beyond 
reform it. It is just it's got it out of control at this point. Um, and again, I don't necessarily know all of the answers. I don't even know how to even say what an answer could be. <laughs> right. Um, but change has to happen, and I just think maybe it's big. Like I said, it's bigger than just the law enforcement. Um, my God, I mean, it's a it's a real dangerous situation. It's a, it's a real sad time. Like um, whatever happened in uh, that uh, San Diego, uh, what, San Francisco. There's been honestly, there's been so many that come out. It's like I don't even, (laughs) you know what I mean. It just it makes me this this is one area that just makes me sick to my stomach to just be like, because it's like you're killing people. It's like when like again, now the police departments are like the enemy, and and honestly, they're not an enemy of mine in my heart, right? But because of who I am. I have to always be on guard and protect, you know, going back yeah. to what I was saying earlier, just being a black man is no, I have no choice. I won't be foolish. You know, I have no choice to be like, oh my God, I'm, you know, what could happen uh, based on what has already happened, you know? And so huh, it's, it's, it's scary. It's sad. Uh, I, I, I get sad about it because it's like, if we don't have police, if you can't trust the police, because again, it goes back to the point that without true protection or law and order for these minority groups, you know, where are we going to, you know, I always think about well, where women can go if they are dealing with domestic violence, if we don't really have honest and genuine police officers or people in place that can help, you know, or, if, you know, we're talking about, you know, you know, um, you know, a queer boy walking down the street and he's getting bullied and beat on and we don't have police officers that could be right in the neighborhood and see that and be able to intervene and save that boy's life. So I always think about, yes, we hate the police now, <laughs> but in general, if we didn't have it, what would happen? And it's just, it's the scariest place to be in, that to feel that everyone is vulnerable at this point. It's no safe place, whether from the people that's supposed to be protecting us or from the people that we are neighbors with. And that's just scary to me. Like, nothing is safe. You know, it's almost like we talk about that show, uh, that movie, The Purge. It's like, put me, you know, it's like, we ain't too far. Like, <laughs> you just never know without true, honest um, protection, you know, um, with, especially for me, I'm saying with all the minority groups, the people that usually don't have the resources to protect themselves or it could be um, targets yeah. based on yeah. their own identity. Right. You know, um, it's a thing. So. Well, Tariq, uh, I want, I'd like to hear a little bit about, you mentioned you've got a book coming out soon. Would you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, yes. Yeah, so, um, Probably a little, lot of overlap, but I want you to be feel free to promote, and in addition to the book, if you have any, events or anything like that coming up or you know what i mean let us know where we can find you yes yes so um i definitely would consider myself a, um an activist uh, you know someone a community organizer but i'm i'm an artist I, I write i primarily write plays um i've done a few productions here in austin you know um from work in atlanta i'm trying to get you know continue to expand on my work as a playwright Right now, I do have a new book that's coming out on August 27th. Um, it's called No Bond So Strong. And basically, it's a, um, a fictional coming-of-age drama about four friends um, growing up, four black queer friends growing up in Detroit. 
and the adversities of um, growing up in an inner city like Detroit and what comes along with that. You know, when we talk about being black and queer in inner city, we're talking about homelessness. We're talking about the HIV AIDS epidemic. We're talking about discrimination. We're talking about the lack of the black father in most black homes. We're dealing with all of those issues. We're talking about, you know, um, that some of them not even making it past their 30s, you know, and that's a real situation. It's, it's loosely based on stories that I know growing up. And I just felt like it was it's time to continue to tell the stories that need to be told. You know, we talk about intersectionality. We were talking about educating people, opening up our allies' eyes. Then we have to have literature. We have to have documentation of these experiences, whether it's for, you know, in a form of entertainment, whether it's scholarly, whether it's all those things. But you have to have it. People have to be able to read and maybe identify with that story. And it doesn't always have to be like I'm telling my truth, but it's somebody's truth. It's real. And that's what I, I want the book to do, to be able to tell a real story about what, you know, black gay youth is going through in the inner cities and what that means. I mean, it's, 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 it can be sad if you don't know that it is a thing of overcoming. It is a thing of making it out, you know, and socioeconomic is one thing. Going back to what we've been talking about, then you add being black, then you add being, you know, gay, and you add all these others, and then you add being transgender, or you add being, you know, some trans man, you know, trans woman, all these different things that people might not understand. Then you add being someone who doesn't identify with any gender, you know, this idea of gender non-conforming, all of these things, and. You know, one of the biggest arguments is that everybody want a label. Everybody want a label. You know, we label everything. And I agree. But I think labels help people who don't know understand. Give them an introduction as to what that means. If I don't know what that is, never experienced it, where can we start and have a dialogue if we can't create this made up label. I mean, labels can be, are used to, to, I think, introduce, but then we can start taking those labels back once we let the world know what that means. You know, everybody want to do the, what is that big now? The um, DNA. Everybody want to know. Oh yeah. 23andMe and all that kind of stuff. Ancestry.com. <laughs> everybody want to know where they're from. Like Everybody wants to be able to identify. Like identity is so huge right now. Everybody wants to be able to say I'm this and not that, or I'm, you know, when we talk about multi-racial multi people, like I'm just still learning about what that means. You know, if you take a person that's mixed, you know, maybe black and white, well, do they consider themselves black? Do they consider themselves white? Are they biracial? Are they multi-racial? Do they not identify with either race? It's like, but then people are now coming into wanting to define who they are. It's I, almost every day I'm running into learning identity, you know, and intersectionality, all of these things, where do people fit and what does that mean? And so, you know, I'm an Afro-queer writer and that's what I'm, that's my goal is to, let's talk about identity, let's talk about intersectionality, let's talk about what's going on in our people of color, youth, queer people. I, I have a soft spot because we don't have a voice. I didn't have a voice, enough of a voice, so I want to be able to make sure that I'm a, giving that back to a community that I'm from and be able to 
expand on what that means, you know, um, when you're dealing with all the isms. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So so is this something that you're self-publishing or you've actually, you've got a major publishing agreement or like what's the what's the situation i'm just kind of curious yeah it's self-published um i'm working with a publishing editor here in austin um i'm big on just doing my art i'm not you know especially 2018 trying to go through hoops and to tell somebody that your story is good or telling someone people need to hear that story i'm beyond that um maybe i was younger and was really cared about what others say that needs to be told I'm not at that point. I'm at the point of telling the stories that I think need to be told. And if everybody do that, we have a lot of stories to hear and learn from, you know. So it's self-published. Um, it's, um, you can pre-order it now on my website, mrtelltales.com. That's my you know, alias, you know, I, that's my performer name, my writer name. Um, I like to tell the stories that needs to be told. Um, the book will be out on the 27th, the event. I'm having a book release event. I don't have the address of the location yet. That will be coming soon. Um, but everything will be on social media on um, Instagram, Mr. Telltales, Facebook, Mr. Telltales, Twitter, Mr. Telltales. I'll put I'll put that in the show notes too. Okay. Um, let's see. I just want to see if there's any other topics we can tackle real quick before we uh, before we sign off from this podcast. Um, yeah, I'm kind of curious, like what. Uh, did you have, I mean, it sounds like you've got a lot on your plate in terms of the stories you're trying to tell and getting in your specific movement. Do you, do you have any interest in politics beyond that at all? And something maybe a little bit more broadly speaking? Uh, I mean, I mean, I do have my you know undergrad in political science, international studies. Um, I decided a long time ago that I was, I, I, do not like politics. I'm like anti-politics because it's just, it's just, I don't, it doesn't, it's not my thing because it's some of the red tape that you have to go through and the the game that you have to play. It's it's a game. I'm more so on the outside of that, like trying to, you know, get the game caught, you know, thrown out, you know, said type of thing. Uh, I do believe that you have to have a seat at the table. So I'm not, I'm very aware that for policy to happen, for real change to happen, it has to be through legislation. It has to be through, you know, real, you know, um, efforts and advocacy. And so being a community organizer, I do believe that you, you have to be where things is being done. Like the conversations are really happening. I can sit on the, the sidelines and cry all day, but if I don't make my way to the field, to yell, then no one would hear me. Um, and so, I mean, right now I am um, on the commissioner on the Austin's first LGBTQ um, board and commission here, Quality of Life. And so this is kind of like my intro into, you know, politics and really having a seat at the table to try to, you know, make real change, even here in a place like Austin that um, prides on being weird, but their definition is weird of weird is totally def- right. different than what I consider weird and their weirdness don't represent my weirdness. And again, that lack, that idea of where do I fit or where do people look like me fit? And I don't know if Austin is necessarily a great representation of that, even though they pride on being diverse. I don't know what diverse, maybe levels of weirdness is the diversity that they're talking about. 
And again, it's not to say that I don't love Austin. It's not to say that I'm not here to help make the change. But it's definitely a city that prides on something that is not really there. You know, um, they don't want to deal with gentrification. They don't want to deal with the idea of a booming city with the highest black declining population in the country. That's a, a thing, a real thing. Or we have all these historical neighborhoods on the east side that have all these historical meanings and murals getting painted over and being, you know, the idea of whitewashed and stuff like that as, well, are you making it more weirder? Again, what is weird, you know? And um, so that's important. So, so would I get more into politics? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I'd rather be radical. <laughs> I haven't even got, I don't I hear think that. I've even began in the radicalness <laughs> that I want to do. Nice. So I don't know. I like the, I like the, the smile on your face <laughs> when you say, like, I want to be radical. Yeah, I kind of do. <laughs> like, I don't know. Uh, that's the quote for the podcast. I, w- I want to be radical, man. I don't want to be in politics. I want to be radical. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's great. Uh, I think it's more of my lane, you know. And, right I, and I'm not saying that I'm already there yet. I feel like I'm. That's the end goal is to be able to be a troublemaker. <laughs> ah, love it, love it. Um, I, I I do want to mention one organization. I'm not familiar. No, if you're familiar with the uh, the DSA. Are you familiar with the DSA? No. Democratic Socialists of America. Uh, there is a chapter here in Austin. They do have, I believe, a queer caucus within the group. Um, so it's basically a group that is to the left of the Demo- modern Democratic Party. Um, I think, and I mean, this is a, a poor shortcut, but someone like Bernie Sanders would be more or less, I would say they probably a little bit to the left of even a Bernie Sanders type figure. But I mean, he's the only kind of mainstream name in American politics that you can sort of point to as being remotely a true, what I would consider a true left. Mm-hmm. Um, so they are a group that is focused on local um, elections and may having a local impact first. So primarily at like the city level, the county level, the state level, and that's kind of where they focus their efforts because obviously at the national level, it takes, there is a a huge game that has to be played and there's all, you know what I mean? There's all kinds of nuances and it's such a large scale, but they try to make a direct impact here on the community. It's a group that I'm really excited. I'm hoping to join fully soon. I haven't had just, my time commitment has been so big with the podcast and doing other things that I haven't had an opportunity, but it's a group that I'm definitely interested in, in checking out and, and becoming a member. One, a couple of things that they did recently are they, they had a, a thing where they were having people, their members replace like broken taillights and things like that. Um, because oftentimes that's what causes someone to get pulled over by the cops. You know what I mean? So little things like that that are given back to the community that are helping people. Um, I think that's that's a great place to start is little things like that. They're also very instrumental in getting the Austin City Council to add in um, like sick, sick time for workers. And so basically like depending on the size of your business and then the amount of hours that this person was working, they were entitled to some element of sick time. You know what I mean? Which I think is a big, big deal, right? 
So they're making some local impacts. I just would encourage you to maybe check it out, see if it feels like something you might be interested in, because I think you, there might be some overlap in terms of what your goals are and the group as well. Yeah, I definitely will look it up. Um, I'm always, like you said, it's the little things. And, I mean, that sounds like a very good um, idea with the t- um, the taillights and stuff like that. So, yeah, I would definitely um, check it out, see what they're all about. Um, I'm always open for for the cause, you know. But it's that idea of intersectionality, so I, I, go, in <laughs> there with, I go in there with that, with many hats. And so... If they're open, if they're open to explore many hats, then definitely seems like a good place to check out. I mean, from from what I know, I, I think so. Um, I mean, I really i I want to get involved myself too, and like I want to make direct like direct action. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Not just like giving money. Like I want to, if I'm giving money, like I want to hand it to a family or like to the person. Mm-hmm directly without like overhead without foundations without like let's go find somebody that needs like an old lady that her house is falling apart like let's go clean up her yard let's go mow her yard let's fix something that's broken like you know what i mean mm-hmm. i think that's where out at being seen out in the community doing really positive things that are directly going to impact people's lives like that's a great starting point you know what i mean it's, it's perfect it, it's it's the real work and, you know, I, I like to say that because um, I'm so involved in so many things, sometimes I feel like that real work is, is, is like I got to do more. Uh-huh. You, we all feel like we got to do more, right? And so I do want to kind of give a, like, a shout-out to those activists that is doing that. Like, um, and it, it's a few here in Austin. And, my God, like, people who give themselves the way that they do. And, like I said, I'm just a portion of that. You know, I know some that just really just give themselves and uh, we all strive to you know well the ones who do we all strive to be that way so i like to definitely give a shout out to all the activists that give so much to themselves to the community i mean it's not you know an easy job and i also want to let them know um self-care is important you know we can give ourselves so much to what we're doing you know being a you know mental health advocate i have to always stress self-care you know take the time out for yourself you know this world is going to go on these issues are going to be here you as a person can only do so much and you can always do more but you know you have to do that in a healthy mind and a healthy spirit and so i just wanted to make sure i say that <laughs> <laughs> i think that's a that's a great way to close us out unless you have any any last thoughts that you want to add but no, I think that was really good. You know? yeah. And that's for everybody, you know, anybody that's listening. Spend the time on self-care. Well, Tariq, thanks again for coming out and making your way all the way at, down here to South Austin. <laughs> yes. Way, way down in, yeah. in the... Uh, GPS. <laughs> <laughs> right? Um, but, yeah, it was a real pleasure to host you. I would love to have you on again in the future. Um, if you're, if you're willing, um, and if you have any opportunities that you think I'd be interested in, definitely shoot them my way. I, I want to be, I want to get more involved. I, w- I need to network and meet more people that are active in the community, just doing something positive. You know what I mean? I want to be part of, of something. I feel like I haven't had the opportunity to do that a lot. So yeah, keep, keep me in mind. Definitely. Definitely. Yes, yes, yes. Let's make it happen. For sure. Yeah. Well, this is Cooper Cherry and...
Podcast is signing off for the week. Bye-bye.